the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And I say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Nothing's gonna stop us now, lads. We're going straight to the top. The toppermost of the poppermost. <laughs> In winter of 1963, thought that the world would freeze with John F. Kennedy and the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As someone once told us. Welcome to this week's Toppermost of the Poppermost. We're well into the winter of 1963, February of 1963 to be precise. I'm Ed Chin. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. Martin, you've been telling us about the winter of 1963 uh, offline a little bit. You, you say it compares, but may not match up to what we just had fairly recently here in the States. During that winter of uh, early 1963, Britain went down to temperatures as low as minus 22.2 centigrade, which is only a measly minus 8 degrees Fahrenheit compared to what you're putting up with in america at the moment what is it minus 40 did you say the other day kit yeah i was gonna say huh <laughs> it was like summer to you lot yeah we dream of eight <laughs> below zero so it, it gives us some context you know we always hear these stories about the beatles driving off the road and being stuck uh, and the infamous Beatles sandwich stories we lay on each other with a bottle of whiskey and then when the one on the top got so cold he was like hypothermia was setting in <laughs> <laughs> it was his turn to get on the bottom and then you know we'd warm each other up that way and keep swigging the whiskey it was quite an image you know if you, you know you'd think you know people think stardom and it's glamorous you know there's us freezing, laying literally on top of each other <laughs> oh yeah the Beatles sandwich <laughs> Plus, a lot Good of people were stuck going stuck at home more often as well. So, so businesses weren't as o open for as long. So, people were at home more and had more time to themselves as well in Britain. Which is going to play into the story of Please Please Me. Well, we're starting off with Please Please Me because Please Please Me would be rising up the charts very quickly during the month of February. So, January the seventeenth was the first week it was on the charts. It sort of rose. A little bit during the last few weeks in January, but February is where it really started to make its big move. It won't be impacting the types of songs on the charts quite yet, but this is the moment when the Beatles will really make their mark. I mean, this is the song that will set them on their way to absolute superstardom. So there's a lot of legends that have grown up around Please Please Me. I think particularly there's been a lot of question, you know, who did the drumming? You know, there's still arguments to this day. And was it really Ringo on the drums and that kind of stuff? 
This is the anthology version we're talking about. Right. The way it appears to have happened is they did their first session with George Martin and they played everything they had. And George Martin went to them and said, I don't really hear a hit anywhere in here. Right. And in fact, jumping ahead here, he wanted them to record How Do You Do It? Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, he because he didn't hear a hit, he went into A&R man mode and went out and said, well, I'll find you a song that's going to be a hit. I believe that you are talented enough to have a big hit. And in fact, you know, George Martin was right. And yeah, I mean, it was a good, a good, good song. I mean, it was a pop song, but the Beatles didn't really like it and said, I still think we could write something better than this, which think about it. I mean, that was a pretty cheeky thing to do. <laughs> I mean, this is a new band. They've just been signed recently. In this era, that was just not done. You did what your producer told you to do. I mean, this was an era where a lot of bands didn't write their own stuff. So that was a very nervy thing for them to do. But as we know, they did record a version of it to satisfy George Martin. But they had an ace up their sleeve. Well, I mean, they soon would. Mm -hmm. So John Lennon went off and, you know, he said, I can do better than that. Not necessarily better than How Do You Do It, which he hadn't heard yet. But he took George Martin's comments to heart and said, I'm going to write a better song than anything we've done so far. I wonder whether Paul had also had something, you know, maybe Sawyer Standing There was his contribution to try and be the single. That's about the same time we're talking about. But John went off, and it is pretty much a John Lennon-written song. We know that, and came up with the beginnings of Please Please Me. Right, but as we know, it was originally a Roy Orbison kind of song. You know, he said he was mimicking Roy Orbison in the tempo and the ballad, you know, the dramatic kind of build-up with the come on part. Come on, come on, come on, come on, please please me, oh yes, like I please you, oh yes, like I please you, oh yes, like I please you. They brought it back to the studio, played it for George, and he was not impressed. Well, I don't know if he necessarily wasn't impressed. He didn't he, like the tempo. He didn't like the tempo. He had more notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wasn't impressed with the tempo, but he said, I think if you speed it up, you know, and we do some rearranging, we may have something. Well, and mind you, Pete Best was still behind the drum kit. Yeah, and that was the other thing. So, of course... They went back, took George Martin's notes to heart, and rearranged it. I always liked John's story about how he came up with the idea that it's sort of based on the Bing Crosby thing, the, the, yes. the multiple versions of please, you know, please lend your little ears to my please. Oh, please lend your little ears. To my please. John loved wordplay. Lewis Carroll books, his comic writings. I mean, this was his thing. And of course, it didn't hurt that it was double entendre. So, 
Well, <laughs> yeah, no, that would have been John's thing. Exactly. So it was a little dirty on top of it. So that was great. Great for him. <laughs> well, the, well, the word placing, he shared that with another one of his heroes, Chuck Berry, because Chuck Berry was a big person for using wordplay in his lyrics. Very true. Well, and Chuck Berry had no qualms about making things just a little bit dirty as well. Exactly. Absolutely. I kind of think the only thing which is still there in the finished version of Please Please Me is that come on. You can kind of hear that a little bit, you know, come on, not an answering vocal, but come on, ching, ching, you know, a, a mm-hmm. little bit of rhythm guitar, come on, ching, ching, come on, ching, ching, and then to a big please, please me, you know. Yeah, you can definitely hear the Roy Arbison influence there. (laughs) Okay, so they took George Martin's notes to heart. They went and they, and this is kind of where the confusion had always hit me, is like, when did they do the slow version? When did they, it had to have been the first time at EMI when they played the slow version, because... And it's a shame that we don't have a Pete Best version of the slow Please Please Me. Was it that they didn't record it at all, or is it that they raced a bunch of tapes? I I tend to think it's more they just didn't record it at all. Okay. I mean, the reason that they recorded it when they did, during the Andy White Love Me Do session, was because there was time, and because there was apparently serious thought given to putting... Please Please Me, on the B-side of Love Me Do. Oh, yeah, that's right. That is another amazing thing, that Please Please Me was almost a (laughs) B-side. I mean, can you believe it? But, I mean, you know, from the version which we have on Anthology, it's kind of three-quarters of the way there, I would say. Mm Mm-hmm. The tempo has been raised, but the drumming is not quite right. Mm Mm-mm. And that is such a key component of this track because you have that kind of explosion with the title phrase it has to have that burst of energy and so the drumming is such an essential component in addition to the vocals and and the lyrics so yeah you really hear that on anthology that that ingredient needs to be there well i mean love me do is not so much of a drum driven song and neither is p.s i love you for that matter right so, I mean, you know, it's not quite so evident that Ringo's not there. You do miss the tambourine a little bit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, Giles. We want Ringo's version with the tambourine. Darn right. Can't you just ship the tambourine from this other version and put it into another well, version? Uh, eventually. I mean, you know, when we let Mal onto those tapes. Yep. <laughs> but then, of course, we'll complain because it doesn't sound right. Over on the right, <laughs> much like Taxman. It just doesn't hit hard enough. (laughs) Anyway, so once they decided, okay, we're not going to use this as a B-side, and it may be that George Martin listened to it and said, it's still not quite there. We need to tinker with it a little bit, and it will work out. And so the point you were saying is it was the session with White on drums, and there are kind of two versions of that. It's they let the session drummer leave early and that this has Ringo on it or Ringo didn't play on this version of please, please me either. You listen to it. It doesn't sound like Ringo. Yeah. That doesn't sound like a typical style. Most notably it's that so-called minuscule of a beat that Ringo misses as he crosses his hands. It's not there. Exactly. This is where it gets very confusing. 
if you double the speed, you might get somewhere with it. And they came back with it, um, with a different idea, and I added the harmonica to it. And um, in no time at all, it seemed to be transformed. And we recorded it. Again, they took George Martin's notes, and so Love Me Do went out, backed by P.S. I Love You, and it did what it did, as we've already detailed. And as it was sort of rising the charts, they went back in, and they said, here it is, and George Martin finally agreed. Yep. And I, I was so delighted with it. And, yep. of course, made that famous statement after they finally finished it. Gentlemen, you've got your first number one. Recorded on the 26th of November 1962, eight years to the day later, I would be born. <laughs> there you go. Then history. Yeah, <laughs> I've got my history. connection in. <laughs> hey, absolutely. And then it would be released in January. Now, one of the things, one of the reasons we were talking about the winter of 1963, one of the very first promotional things the Beatles did for Please Please Me was they went on British TV in, what, January the 12th? Yep, January the 12th, because it was released on the 11th, and then they went on the TV the day after. Yep. Wow. And that was in the middle of this frozen cold winter, so nobody was leaving the house. Everybody was sitting at home, huddled around the heater. So you had the television show Thank Your Lucky Stars, and back in those days there were only two television stations in the UK, the BBC and the ITV station. Wow. A supposition a lot of people have made is that a lot of people were both exposed to the Beatles and exposed to this song in particular because they were stuck at home. Yep, so it was fate, partially. There you have it, and so... As mentioned in the January show, it entered the charts. It rose the charts slowly, but February is where Please Please Me would really just sort of make its big jump up. Absolutely. So. Yep. The Fab Fo announced the debut of Magical Mystery Camp, partnering with RPM Music School and Music Masters Collective. The Fab Faux, including Will Lee, one of the few people who's managed to play with all four of the solo Beatles individually, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty invite you for three days and nights in celebration of the music of the Beatles at this special event. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and so much more. If you are a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open and spots are already filling up, so register soon. All right, so on to the charts. We're going to start with the American charts this time. You want to start us off here, Kit? I think I'm going to do this a little differently because we have a couple of trends here, and the trends do pertain to the Beatles. So there are a couple of trends that we're going to see on these charts. And one of them is the presence of folk and specifically folk pop. This is a little different than Bob Dylan. We will get to him in just a bit. I mean, he's not on the charts, but 
Here is an example. This is Walk Right In, which is at number two by the Rooftop Singers. Do you want to lose your mind? isn't folk as in like Peter, Paul, and Mary, but it was an example of this folkish sound. Now, we're going to see this along the way where it's this folkish kind of sound where it's not overtly political. A lot of the songs are covers of traditional folk. There may be some vaguely political protest elements to it. Not really with Walk Right In, but definitely safer folk that the family can enjoy. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Family-friendly folk. And this was before Bob Dylan really started making an impact on the folk scene and really changed things, changed folk for good. I mean, really revolutionized it. So Walk Right In was uh, an example of that. If you go down to number 56, you get another example, Settle Down, Going Down That Highway, Peter, Paul, and Mary. I'm going down that highway, going to another town. Maybe when I find what I'm looking for, then maybe I'll settle down. Why don't you help me, brother? I'm a stranger in your town. Why don't you help me, sister? And then maybe I'll settle down. Why don't you help me, brother? I'm a stranger in your town. Why don't you help me, sister? And maybe I'll settle down. Now, they would get a bit more political as time went on, but this is another example. This was the second single off their album, Movin'. The biggest single off that album would be Puff the Magic Dragon, which, as we know, would be a monster hit. But this was really focusing more on their harmonies. If you go to 58, we get the Kingston Trio, which was, of course, an enormously successful group of the genre. Um, Greenback Dollar. There was also a British copy, I would say, of this folk rage going on. And in fact, uh, not the Kingston Trio, but the Carter Lewis Trio would be the Beatles guests on the second edition of Pop Go the Beatles, and they would play Greenback Dollar. Ah, interesting. And I don't give up about a greenback dollar. Spend it fast as I can for a wailing song and a good guitar. The only things that I understand, oh yeah. The only things that I understand, oh yeah. The only things that I understand, oh boy. The only things that I understand. Carter Lewis and the Southerners there, using the same currency as the Kingston Trio, a greenback dollar. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, it was going on both sides of the pond. And I should mention, just as a side note, Greenback Dollar was co-written by Hoyt Axton. I mean, he was a sometime actor, but he wrote a number of songs, including uh, Three Dog Nights, Joy to the World. He would write folk, but 
other kinds of songs as well. So this was kind of the predecessor to what would become folk rock. Wouldn't get folk rock quite yet, as we know, with Rubber Soul and, and so forth. But this was kind of the precursor to it. But as I said, you know, this wasn't the straightforward, more personal kind of folk or the protest kind of folk. This was folk pop. Yeah, the somewhat more contemporary reference that people might remember is the film uh, A Mighty Wind, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, the folk version of Spinal Tap in a lot of ways. (laughs) It's the story of a label which was releasing exactly this kind of thing. And, well, they wrote a whole bundle of these type of songs for their fictional acts to play. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that's the thing. And then just one more thing to note is number 44 of this first week that we're looking at as uh, the Ballad of Jed Clampett by Flat and Scruggs. And yes, this was the Beverly Hillbillies theme. It's incredible playing, but bluegrass was kind of having a moment at this time. And bluegrass would have an influence on rock in its later years. Just country in general would continue to have big influence. So it's just interesting, again, just showing the wide variety of music that is on the charts at this time, that bluegrass would be on here. And I know partially it was because the exposure it got through the Beverly Hillbillies theme. But Flat and Scruggs were some of the best bluegrass players of this time. So it's just interesting to note that it would be on the charts. Well, and then to turn that around into the future, the song that Paul did with Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, right. you know that's very much you bet absolutely so yeah bluegrass is still a force today around this time you'd also find that paul simon was writing songs towards what would become the first simon and garfunkel album that got recorded later in the year. There's a little bit of that in Red Rubber Ball. I mean, you know, you can kind of hear that that is somewhere in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're really hearing the rumblings of folk, and we're not going to go on this tangent, but like in 1960, you had Joan Baez's first album. So the 60s folk revival is really starting to bubble up here. All right, you want to move on to the next topic? Bossa Nova. It was so popular at this point. I mean, it's just amazing when you go down the charts here, how many Bossa Nova songs were big. We had a preview of that when we talked about Meditation by Charlie Bird. Well, there are more. At number 53, Our Day Will Come by Ruby and the Romantics. And if you don't know it by the title, you've heard this. Ruby and the Romantics? Right. And these are the Romantics behind us. Right. <laughs> Is it true, gentlemen? Yeah. <laughs> well, Akron must be very proud of you. They are. And the next song that you're going to sing is your is your very big record hit. How many records has it sold, Ruby, or do you oh, know? I point? really don't know. Over a million, would you say? Well, I really don't know. How many records has Close it sold? To Close to a million. 999,000. <laughs> <laughs> that is called? 
Our day will come. And it has. Ruby and the Romantics. It's a little more pop. Yes, it is. It's definitely not, quotes real bossa nova. Now, I should mention Antonio Carlos Jobim was the father of bossa nova, and many of his songs were covered, including Meditation, by the way, that we talked about last time. That's a Jobim song. If you jump ahead a week, you have Fly Me to the Moon at number 17, which is Joe Harnell and his orchestra. It's kind of a cheesy lounge version. You know, you could picture Austin Powers with the martini glass in his hand, but you know, this was a sound. Then another big hit at number 18 of the week of February 16th was Blame It on the Bossa Nova. And this was more of a pop Bossa Nova combination. And it was written by Wild Man, uh, Bro Building. Blame it on the Bossa Nova with its magic spell. Blame it on the Bossa Nova that it did so well. Their take. Bossa Nova. So that was much more of a pop-oriented thing. Then you have a particularly notable Bossa Nova song, Cast Your Fate to the Wind by the Vince Guaraldi Trio. Of course, we all know and love from the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas album, but this was the song that essentially got him the job. And it's a beautiful song. Vince Guaraldi was such a talent. And, by the way, a big Beatles fan. He ended up recording a number of covers of their songs. He was a huge, huge fan. And... That week, number 96, Bossa Nova USA by the Dave Brubeck Quartet. got in on this. So just amazing how Bossa Nova was the thing in 63. <laughs> 
Bossa Nova was clearly another one that they might have said, oh, well, that's the next big thing. And John and Paul talk about that. You know, they were sitting there saying, what's the next big thing? Can we write something like that? You know, remember, they had just come off of writing a twist for Pete Best. Mm-hmm. That's right. So you can't help but think it's the Beatles were sitting and writing their songs. And they must have been looking at the charts and taking note. Like, okay, Bossa Nova's big. Can we write about something and maybe incorporate a little Bossa Nova into it? Maybe an I Love Her. You know, maybe when they were writing that, they were looking at this. This happened once before. When I came to your door. No reply. They said it wasn't you. But I saw you peep through your window. And as I said, country and folk. So it's just interesting when you take kind of a broader look at the charts when you see these trends emerging. Just fascinating. Well, and it's amazing to think we're only a year off from February of 1964. Mm -hmm. And we all know what would be happening then. Mm -hmm. That's right. Everything would change. (laughs) So we move on to some of the other songs now that we've talked about genres. At number 12, we had Gene Pitney with Half Heaven, Half Heartache. Gene Pitney had a great voice. He did. He did. Yeah, and he had such a an emotional delivery. Reminds me a little bit of Roy Orbison in, in that sense, like with this song particularly. Kind of. I mean, in terms of, like with this song, in terms of, you know, the melodrama of this song, doing kind of a mini play in a way. I mean, but yeah, he had a big voice. You're right. Town Without Pity, there's the song where he gets his voice out there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is almost kind of more a novelty thing. But again, you know, westerns were big at the time. Absolutely. He also wrote for other people like Hello Mary Lou, that famous song by Ricky Nelson. Yes. And um, Kit pointed out over our messaging that he wrote He's a Rebel by not really the Crystals, as I pointed out before. Yes. Scandalous. Scandal. Ooh. <laughs> and then some songs for Bobby V. I, you know, I, I honestly don't know how Bobby V managed to stick around for as long as he did. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little amazing. For the first week of February, we have Tony Bennett again. Yeah, Tony Bennett was uh, was quite, you know, prolific at this point, And I want to be around I mean, this is one of his theme songs. What a great song it is. I've seen him in concert many times, and he would just slay this every time. It, it just shows what a powerful voice he had, and just a first-class interpreter. And as we know, uh, he would sing with Paul many years later on uh, his duets album. They would sing Very Thought of You. That one with Paul McCartney that came out in 2006, which featured other people like Barbara Streisand, Elton John, Billy Joel. The 2011 album was the Duets 2 album that uh, had, you know, Amy Winehouse and Lady Gaga, Michael Bublé, Aretha Franklin and 
all these other people. It's kind of interesting to think that, you know, when the Beatles came along, they kind of damage, in a way, the career of people like Tony Bennett. Because that when they came along, I mean, they kind of pushed Tony off the charts. Um, and he had to really re-strategize his career. And so it's kind of interesting. Although, know, I mean, stylistically, he was still kind of in the Sinatra mold. So right. he was, it was slightly old hat by that point anyway. Not mm-hmm. that they weren't great songs and they weren't presented and performed well. It's just not what was on the charts, really. It's amazing mm-hmm. he did as well as he did for as long as he did. Yeah, that was pure talent. Just fantastic. I get a kick out of Tony Bennett turning 95 today because I love him and his music and I love his son, Danny. Happy birthday, Tony. At number 64, we have Chuck Jackson with Tell Him I'm Not Home. The... But last night when I called you A song which Ringo said that he liked. Chuck Jackson in general was one of the Beatles' favorite soul singers. September 6, 1964, at a Detroit press conference, they were asked different artists they liked and mentioned Chuck Jackson. He's just like one of those old school, early 60s, just great soul singers. This is a classic example of it. What's great about this song is there's this moment where the strings on this track act almost as a chorus with them going back and forth, answering him. If by chance you found somebody new and you don't know what to say or do as he'll sing a line very cool technique and he's just emotional you know one of those singers that gets down on his knees and pours out his heart it's one of those I can definitely see why they would be fans of his what, what would influence James Brown and his end of show style exactly He wasn't a dancer like that, but definitely that kind of showmanship. Great, great singer. And uh, I think his other big hit was a cover of Any Day Now. Ah, okay, yeah. Yep. Okay, uh, at number 72, we have uh, I Really Don't Want to Know by Little Esther Phillips, who would be rebranded as Esther Phillips. Beatles liked her enough that they would actually fly her over to England. Yes, she did a cover years later of And I Love Her, of course, switching to And I Love Him, which nearly made the R&B top 20, and the Beatles liked it so much, they flew her to the UK for her first overseas uh, performances. But this one actually sounds a bit more on the countryside which is fascinating. And she actually did record some other country songs as well. She uh, released a a version of the song Release Me, 
which was an even bigger hit. It topped uh, the R&B chart and also reached number eight on the pop chart. And it was quite sad throughout her career. She struggled with heroin addiction. Um, And she did make a comeback in the 70s. She had a disco hit in 75. What a difference that made. She had that comeback, but passed away uh, in the 80s. Essentially, it was kind of repercussions from her heroin addiction. It's just, mm. you know, uh, so really, really sad. Uh, at number 81, we have Roy Orbison with End Dreams. This is one of his just big songs and the big voice. The voice. Uh, then we got a couple of flip sides. We have to remember that at this point in time, and as would be for the Beatles as well, Billboard would rank both sides of the single separately because airplay was such a large component for them. Uh, it was less of the case for Cashbox. And for the third chart, it was not at all. It was strictly based on sales. All right. So 85. So this is I Will Live My Life For You. I will live my life for you, just for you. was the follow-up and i think the b-side to i want to be around didn't do as well it actually peaked at this number 85 it's not one of his strongest i mean he sings it incredibly well you know master stylist but particularly lyrically it's not the strongest for him it's a b-side i mean it's a b-side exactly (laughs) and it sounds like it I mean, you can say the same thing for Baby, Baby, Baby. Yep, that's Sam Cooke B-side. He wrote it, and it's okay. It's a more of an up-tempo track. It seems like his attempt at writing something, like, okay, I need to write something up-tempo that's danceable, and I can see why it was relegated to a B-side. <laughs> baby, 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 you got me crying in my sleep. Oh, yes, you have. Cause you let me other fellas steal your love away from me. One more time now, baby, baby, baby. You got me crying in my sleep. And then at number 99, we were speaking of James Brown. There he is, every beat of my heart. I'm a little bit surprised that the Beatles haven't spoken more strongly of James Brown. I mean, you know, they were both such big forces. Oh, yeah. I mean, who did James Brown not influence? And this is kind of an odd one. It's an instrumental cover of a song by Johnny Otis. goes back to 1952. And it's just a really odd oddity from James Brown. You wouldn't think of him releasing an instrumental. guessing that james then is probably playing keyboards on this he was a mean keyboard player yeah 
as I said, I'm surprised this was even released as a single because it's just nothing like him. I think this may have been its peak, 99. This may have been a B-side, I'm not sure. Yeah, B-side of Like a Baby. And if you go online, you'll find photographs. I'm not sure if this footage of Paul McCartney himself on stage, I think in the 80s, dancing with James Brown's band. Ah, interesting. We will find it and we will provide you the link. (laughs) Definitely. Especially since Paul is not a dancer. (laughs) Yes, I think I have to see this. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The week of the 16th at number 59, we have one broken heart for sale. Elvis with the Mellow Men. Elvis Presley, not Elvis Costello. (laughs) Uh, uh, Another song from... One of his films, it happened at the World's Fair. Since she rejected me, there's nothing left to say to me. Yeah. Who wants to buy a bottle? Oh, yeah. One broken lover's heart. One broken heart for sale. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> nice summary, Ed. <laughs> Enough said. Yeah, and the Mellow Man, is a, when I first saw this, I'm like, who? They're background singers, and Elvis, of course, always wanted to use the Jordanaires. And when they weren't available, they'd use the, use the Mellow Man. And they were good. I'm not saying that they were second rate or anything. They were very popular, you know, saying background, on uh, particularly on movie soundtracks and, and so forth. But yeah, this is uh, not one of Elvis's best. <laughs> Even Elvis fans will probably want to deny the existence of this record. Yes, holy cow. (laughs) (laughs) All right, at number 66, Peggy Lee with I'm a Woman. Oh, classic. I got a $20 gold piece, says there ain't nothing I can't do. I can make a dress out of a feed bag and I can make a man out of you, cause I'm a... This is one of her signature tunes. I'm sure everybody knows it. And incredible singer, incredible interpreter. And I'm sure, as many know, she would work with Paul in 74 on an album called Let's Love. And the title track was uh, written, arranged, and produced by Paul. Well, sure. Find it a pleasure to know me Tonight is the flight of the butterfly Let's love At number 89, Let's Stomp by Bobby Comstock You know the song more than you know the guy Yes In the hall they got a rockin' band When I first saw that title, it didn't ring a bell, and then I heard it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know this. And yeah, I believe Lewison actually mentions it as one of the ones that they might have played, or it was on, you know, one of their handwritten set lists. You know, when I heard it, like I could absolutely see them performing it live in, in Hamburg. It, it would go over in front of a live audience. It's a, it's a fun rocker. Okay, we move on to the week of the 23rd. We got another Little Eva song, Let's Turkey Trot. Another one of those 
let's try and make a dance craze kind of song. Uh, was this written by Goffin and King as well? Yes, it was. Okay, so it was actually it was a bigger hit than I expected. It peaked at number twenty. Uh, ultimately, okay. there you go. Um, but is it the locomotion? No. <laughs> it, it definitely wasn't. Love the gobble gobble in the background because, <laughs> of course, it's the turkey trot. And I love Goffin and King. I love their stuff, but not one of their best. Come on, let's turkey trot. Let's get it. Okay, at, at number 49, we had Steve Alamo with Every Day I Have to Cry. It's an Arthur Alexander tune. Yeah, this was fascinating to hear. This was written by Arthur Alexander, and he did record it, but didn't record it himself until 1975, I believe. You can find it right. on YouTube. He, he finally did his own version, which I have to admit I think is, is better um, <laughs> than this version. But this version's fine. Every day I have to cry. Steve Lamo, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, was, you know, a teen idol in the 60s and, and singer. And he had nine singles in the Billboard uh, Hot 100 in his uh, career. And he was sort of a blue-eyed soul singer and had an all-African-American backup band, which is mm, kind of unusual. Interesting. Yeah, at that time. Yeah, I just was fascinated when I found out that Arthur Alexander wrote it. So moving on, we have a Mary Wells song, Laughing Boy, written by Smokey. I actually had not heard this one before. This somehow flew under my radar. And Laughing Boy, that's what they used to call you. Not one of Smokey's best, and I love Smokey. I really do. And I was really excited to hear this. And it's interesting because there were high hopes for this single. She was coming off a string of hits. You know, The One Who Really Loves You, You Beat Me to the Punch, Two Lovers. I think we've talked about some of those. At number 82, we have a song that which we're all familiar with, Mr. Bassman by Johnny Cymbal, although that's got to be a pretty tenuous Beatles connection there. It was one of those songs that when I saw the title, I thought, wait a minute. And then when I heard it, I thought, oh, wait, this song. You know, it's one of those that, that you may not immediately recognize the title and the, or the artist. And then as soon as you put it on, you know it. I mean, this is such a classic rock and roll record. Mr. Bassman, you've got that certain something. Mr. Bassman, you said that music. 
Johnny Symbol ended up writing and producing records for a number of artists, including Gene Pitney. And John Entwistle ended up covering this song on his third solo album. And I'm sure it's been covered by tons of other people. Number 84, we have Rick Nelson with uh, a cover of a Fats Domino song, one which is much beloved by Paul. Uh, I'm in love again. Paul would do it on the Russian album and on the Klaus Warman documentary. So we're going to uh, piano and sing. Klaus would play bass. Yeah. And the other thing what we should do once we get it out, oh, um, get some kind of click track. Because if you're thinking of putting Ringo on at a later date, we should have some kind of track. Twice as long solo. Uh, da, 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 two verses for the solo. Oh, God. He's getting bossy now. <laughs> Producer Roman. <laughs> <Bowman. laughs> Morning, everybody. A Sideman's Journey, is if you're looking for it. Oh, right. Yep. I remember. And then this is a good cover. I, I like Rick Nelson's cover of this. Solid vocal performance and good guitar solo. So, you know, that's a decent cover. Baby, don't you let your dog bite me. Oh, yeah. Yes, me and I'm in love again. At number 86, we have Ray Charles. We'll, we'll talk more about Ray Charles later because we got a couple songs that we kind of have to mention here. Uh, at number 87, He's So Fine by the Chiffons. Yeah, there's no connection. No, 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 no <laughs> none at all. None at all. We'll, we'll just leave it at uh, George Harrison now owns the publishing on this song. Oh, really? Towards the end of all the lawsuits... Alan Klein and George had broken up by that point. Alan Klein wanted to keep the lawsuits going. So he bought the publishing to He's So Fine. And he kept the lawsuit going. And so George finally said, wait a minute, this is conflict of interest. And the judge agreed. So it's like, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to pay Klein exactly what he paid, not a penny more, and you will own the publishing to He's So Fine. Wow. Oh my gosh. Wow. So the Harrison Estate still owns the publishing that he's so fine. And yet Harrison still did a re-recording of well, the song that was <clears throat> supposedly similar to it. Inspired. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and Oh Happy Day is in the public domain, so right. no one owns that publishing. Wow. And then Jackie DeShannon, best known to most of us these days as the news lady on Breakfast with the Beatles. <laughs> That's <laughs> Every right. Every Tuesday, Chris Carter has her on to give us a little bit of news. Yeah, and this is a, a very interesting uh, song. As I look at the letter you wrote to me, it's you. Oh, it's you I'm thinking of. It's a cover. See, I get to use my knowledge from my last class again. It's a uh, Western swing song. 
written by Bob Wills and his father, John, and his brother, Billy Jack, better known as Bob Wills and his Western Playboys. They were huge name in the Western swing genre, which is a predecessor. I mean, they were hugely influential in the development of rock. And if you listen to their version, the original version, it's very different than this. I mean, she did this more as a tearjerker ballad, whereas the original version is more danceable, which is that's typical country swing that genre was meant to get people on the floor dancing. I mean, it was kind of a mixture of country and big band. You know, if you want to look it up on YouTube, you'll be surprised at how different it is. As I read the lines that to me were so sweet, I remember our faded love. I So before we move on to the UK charts, we've gotten some wonderful reviews and we'd like to share some of them with you. Uh, the first comes from the US uh, Apple Podcast user DPT1213 wrote and told us, this podcast is exciting. Thank you. This is the Beatle podcast I have been waiting for. Great seeing how the records compared with the rest of the charts at that time. This is a must listen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And this is a review that comes from the UK from Funky Fred 5357. I love your username. And it's titled Enjoyable Podcast. It says a very informative podcast giving an alternate view of the well-documented Beatles story, placing the listener in the 60s with a well-rounded view of those whom influenced the Beatles. Thank you very much. That's exactly what we're trying to do, and yep. uh, we are enjoying doing it. So thank you so much for your feedback. Yep, it fits in with that uh, that message that I'm about to read that David Modlin posted up on our Facebook page, where he said, uh, a great new podcast that provides a backdrop to and insight of the heyday that became associated with the Beatlemania era, which is precisely what we're trying to do is highlight what was going on around the Beatles that inspired and influenced the Beatles and they're all inspiring each other around that time. Thanks everybody for listening, especially to you, Al Sussman. If you would like, please review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and who knows, you might hear your message in this slot next time. All right, so we are now on to the British charts. We start with the uh, week of February 7th. Uh, as mentioned in the January show, Please Please Me was kind of creeping up the charts, but here we are, the first week in February, it's all the way up to number three. That was fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Although, you know, we in a couple months, we're going to get to For Me To You. The way For Me To You shot up the charts is just mind-blowing but wow. uh, at number one was a, a song by uh, jet harris and tony Meehan called diamonds uh, members of the shadows
typical shadow sound here, echo-filled guitar sound. This also has some really incredible drumming on this record, uh, courtesy of, uh, of course, Tony Mann. Horns galore. It's a cool sound. I mean, I can see how the shadows were influential. I should have mentioned it in the previous episode, but the Vipers, no other baby, they at one point actually included... Me and Harris and Hank Marvin from the Shadows before the Shadows existed. Hmm. Oh wow! Oh, that's cool. I didn't. But know not that. not when they did the record. That was after that, huh? I think that was after that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. At number twenty-four, we have "Coming Home, Baby" by Mel Torme, or as John Lennon liked to refer to him, Mel Torment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Mel. Yeah, John John was uh, not exactly a fan of <laughs> the 1971 interview with Rolling Stone. John complained at one point. He said, even now, I just saw Mel Torme on TV the other day saying Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was written to promote drugs and so was with a little help from my friends. And none of them were at all. And then, of course, you know, he denies all of that. Mel uh, Torme did uh, cover She's Leaving Home in uh, 1969. This is a very interesting record. This actually was one of the most successful uh, of his career. It was originally an instrumental that was first re- recorded by the Dave Bailey Quintet in 1961, but was made more famous by Herbie Mann when he performed it live at the Village Gate. His recording was released in 1962, and that became popular. Interestingly, Mel Torme's version features lyrics by Bob Duro, who later rose to fame as a lyricist of Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Love that. Okay. Uh, isn't that great? <laughs> At number 26, the Spotniks are back. We talked about them back in the October show. They're doing Have a Nagila. How Have a Nagila became a pop song is beyond me. Yeah. I was hoping you guys would know. There are a couple of interesting things to note about uh, having a gila the mop tops the beetle band who did the version of uh, the locomotion that we played uh, a couple of months back also did a beetleized cover of having a gila mm. the other thing to note is during the 63 tour a few months ahead of where we're looking at the beetles were playing multiple shows on an evening and the opening act for their second show was Denny and the Diplomats led by one Denny Lane. (laughs) Yeah. So because the Beatles were late, Denny and the Diplomats had to extend their set from half an hour to a full hour. So what did they play amongst the songs they played? They played take five from Dave Brubeck. Wow. Again, for a rock or pop combo, that must've been something. Yeah. <laughs> and they played Have a Nagila. Jeez. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up. So that, that's Danny, and that's also what uh, Bev Bevan, uh, who would become part of Yellow. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So that w- would be the first time that Paul and Denny would really get to know each other on that evening, apparently. Wow. wow. So at least tangentially Have a Nagila related. All right, at number 30, Bobby V, who we just finished speaking about, Night Has a Thousand Eyes. That's one of his more popular songs. Yep, that was one of those that at first I couldn't remember it. 
from the title. And then as soon as I heard it, I thought, oh, this was popular on oldies radio when I was in high school. I heard it a lot. So remember when you tell those little white lies that the night has a thousand eyes. It does stand out as an interesting pop song. You know, kind of unusual chord changes in it. That section, the remember when you tell those little white lies, that part, there's some, you know, kind of unusual chord changes for a pop song of that era. So, yeah, this was one of his better songs. I, yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. Yeah. At number 33, the first week of February, The Lonely Bull by the Tijuana Brass, which we mentioned last month. A special shout out to listener... Al Sussman, who pointed out that we made a mistake last time. It was mentioned that Herb Alpert had a hit with a cover version of Fool on the Hill that was incorrect, that it was Sergio Mendez in Brazil 66 that had a hit with a cover version of that, a terrific version, in fact. Do check that out. It's really fun, fun version. I grew up with it. It's really... Uh, fantastic cover kind of reimagines it we regret the error and thanks al for pointing it out yeah but i don't want to offend any fans of sergio or of herb here but they they do sound very similar to each other they've got that sort of cool cuban sort of feel to them well yeah i mean sergio mendez is more of course brazilian sound to it but in fact they shared the same label they were on a&m records and herb assigned uh, Sergio Mendez, and another connection, Herb Alpert's future wife was a member of uh, Sergio's group and sang lead on Full on the Hill. So they're kind of intertwined in many ways. Well, they're, they're in-laws, at least. They're, they're as related as Fleetwood Mac and the Beatles. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I like to, I re, and I also remember 1967, I worked here for the first time with Herb and the Tijuana Press, and, uh, and here we are again together. And my dear, dear friend, my first singer, The Sound of Brazil 66, Lenny Ho. So I'd like to invite, I'd like to invite both of them to sing us a couple of songs with us, all right? Okay, at number 42, Queen for Tonight, Helen Shapiro again. I'm a queen for tonight, queen for tonight, but will I be king tomorrow? So the Beatles were on tour with Helen Shapiro at this point in time, mid-January to mid-February of 1963. And so, you know, she was still on the chart. Such a great voice. Just, she was probably like 16 when she recorded this, if my calculations were correct, and she sounds like she's at least 30. What is it with these young singers that sound like they're in the 30s as opposed to being 14 to 16? Yeah. Yeah, Brenda Lee. Stevie I mean, Wonder in the old days. Yeah. It's yeah, amazing. although Stevie Wonder did still sound young when, it, mm-hmm. when he was little Stevie Wonder. Yeah, yeah. he did. Yeah. At number 43, Funny All Over by the Vernons Girls. This is a weird story. 
also, they were English and a musical ensemble of female vocalists. And they started in Liverpool. They were like a group of 16. But then by 62, they had narrowed down to be, it was basically three members. And they recorded covers of American hits. Clyde McFadder's Lover Please, that was a big hit. But in the U.S., they charted with a Beatles tribute album. This was, I'm assuming, yeah, like 64, called We Love the Beatles. <laughs> so that was their claim to fame there. And they also appeared in the 1964 uh, TV special Around the Beatles. So those are their Beatles connections there. But this song was, I'm sorry to say, kind of odd. Promise not to laugh at his phone, so grab this stuck on the bathroom wall. And when the room is steamy, oh, he looks a dreamy, Kaylee, here and six feet tall. I go funny all over. I go funny all over. So I go funny all over. It's hard to describe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Around the Beatles, which also featured Long John Baldry, the man who would bring us one Reg Dwight. Mm-hmm. I was going to. Oh, ask, yes. I was going to ask if Reg was actually in the band at the time. No, he wasn't. This oh. was before that happened. Yeah. So, okay, at number forty-four, there's "Love Me Do." I mean, you know, as we mentioned, it's still in the charts. It, you know, so this is into February. Yeah, it's been there a long time. That's four months nearly, is it? October, November, December, January, February. That's five months. Five. Wow. Wow. So. You know, while it may not have shot up the charts, it certainly had staying power. And please, please me, I'm sure got people to go back and buy Love Me Do. Yeah, that may be it. Please, please me may have reminded people of, you know, Love Me Do, or maybe they had, you know, heard of them before and like, oh, there's another single by them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. At number 45, Zippity Doo Dah. Yep. From which uh, Paul would do in um, Rod Street in Ed, Ed's favorite film. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Well, one of them. Yep. <laughs> yes, by Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans, and they were a group produced by Phil Spector. It was uh, Bobby Sheen who uh, took the name Bobby Sox, and the Blue Jeans consisted of Darlene Love. Mm. and uh, Fenita James, who were also members of the girl group The Blossoms. It's a very interesting version of Zippity-Doo-Dah. This is not like Disney. Definitely sounds like Phil Spector. Definitely has the early sounds of the wall of sound. But I don't know. It sounds a little, I don't know if darker is the term, but... um, It kind of contrasts with the lyrics, actually. Yeah, it does. Just sounds really incongruous. But fascinating. And of course, we all know the connections with Phil Spector. Then at number 50, Joe Brown again. That's what love will do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, has a little skiffle feel to it. Oh, 
before when we went dancing Sunday nights. That smile you'd give me the movies when they dim the lights. I've tried in vain to wash the memory from my brain. I can't forget you, and that's what love will do. Nice acoustic guitar solo. I assume that's Joe Brown playing it. Probably, because he's a hell of a good guitarist. He is. Okay, so we move on to the week of the 14th. Please Please Me remained at number three. Number 10, we had Sukiyaki by Kenny Ball and his Jasmine. Other than their cover of Lucy, is there any Beatles connection? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, I, I mean, that's all I could find that they covered Lucy in the Sky. And this is interesting. It's kind of a Dixieland version of Sukiyaki. And, uh, and again, this is another example of, you know, the, the, what the charts, you know, were still like at the time. That, you know, you would have these kind of, you know, throwback bands like this, you know, still scoring hits. And then at number 12, we have Island of Dreams from the Springfield. Kind of a cross when you hear this between folk and country. Definitely does not sound like her solo career at all. Okay, the, the next week, the 21st of February, 1963, Please Please Me managed to get all the way up to number two, which is the highest it would get on the official chart. It was number one on pretty much all of the other British charts. At number 22, Like I've Never Been Gone by Billy Fury. We, you know, we've talked about Larry Parnes and his stable. and yep. This is just another example of uh, what was coming out of Billy Fury. You know, nothing too exciting. Again, it's kind of the Elvis sound. All right. So that covers us for February of 1963. So I think kind of our takeaway from this is, A, there was Please Please Me, and it was doing its thing. And this would really, for a number of reasons, it was a perfect storm. The charts were ready or getting ready for the Beatles. Absolutely. And uh, and also, you know, we're, we're seeing these trends. Um, and in the case of, as we talked about, folk, you know, the, the folk movement was starting, you know, I mean, it was this folk pop, but in just a few years, it would eventually become folk rock and and we would uh, of course the Beatles would uh, glom onto that with rubber soul. Although you know this version of folk, you know, like I like I had mentioned, you know, for about the first three or four editions of Pop Go the Beatles, they pretty much booked folk bands as their backup artists. Maybe the BBC was thinking, well, what what can we do? Maybe we have to have some contrast here, but you listen to them today, it, it is just completely incongruous to have these two types of acts on the same show. Someone, you know, a teenager listening to Pop Go the Beatles in June of 1963 is not going to want to hear the Carter Lewis trio doing Weem Away. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, it would be a very different kind of folk uh, that that would emerge. And also we have jazz. We have jazz, pop, um, you know, I guess easy listening. Um, You know, those are still very much on the charts. But uh, but that would soon change. Like Kit was saying, it shows the charts having a wider array of material. Like you said, you've got it's got the folk elements, it's got the bossa nova elements. It's got these new bands coming in and the older ones that have got that staying power there. And, you know, Please Please Me is doing really well. But, I mean, this also ties into 
what we've always known and what we've always said about the Beatles. Why were they so adaptable? They were coming from an era where anything was fair game. That's a good point. I mean, the charts were so diverse. I mean, they were listening to all of this. And then, as we've said before, they were like sponges, you know, and they incorporated this into their own music. Well, I mean, you know, as we talked about at the top of the show, you know, Bing Crosby and Please Please Me. And what the other thing that John Lennon said was that uh, it was influenced by a, what, a song from Snow White? Is that the other thing he said about that? I, yeah, I think so. I don't remember that specific, but probably. Wouldn't surprise well, me. W- Wishing Well was... Maybe. Or am I thinking of another song? Don't know. But it was definitely basing Please Please Me on music that was from years gone by with the influence of Bing Crosby, but also modern with, with Roy Orbison. So he was already crossing the genres and the, and the, and the years in his writing as it was they were already doing that well and it's not just paul i mean you know we like to think that paul was you know paul is the one who took all of these influences from his childhood all the way through john was doing the same thing absolutely so all right very good we will be back soon with uh march of 1963 and believe it or not it only takes till april for for me to you to really take the Beatles to the next level. Wow. wow. Just happened so fast. Amazing. Exactly. I mean, you know, we're talking about we're talking about six months to go from really nowhere to the biggest stars in England. And we're going to trace it all. Exactly. All right. So we will be back next month with a new show, uh, March of 1963. See you then. Take care. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? Yeah, they introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.